1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Meryl Altman, Professor of English and Women's Studies at DePaul University. Her new book, Beauvoir in Time, published by Braille Rodopi Press, situates Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex in its historical context and responds to negative criticism that muddles what she actually said about sex, race, and class. She takes up three aspects of Evoire's works today feminists find problematic. The characterization of the frigid woman and lesbians, the analogy of race and class that obscures black and working-class women, and her examples drawn from white middle-class experience. Charged with ethnocentrism, Interpretations of de Beauvoir, ignoring her place in time, distorts her contribution. Through close reading of Beauvoir's writing in many genres alongside expansive criticism, Alban shows that what appears as a problem for feminist theory is best understood by full consideration of Beauvoir's engagement with Freudian, Marxist, and anti-colonial thinkers. Extremely helpful in understanding the place of the second sex within international feminist theory, Altman offers insight on in how Beauvoir is still relevant in the age of intersectionality and identity politics. Here is my conversation with Merle Altman. Hello, Merrill. Hi. It's great well, to see you. Welcome to the show and thank you for writing such an important book uh, that helps us understand Simone de Beauvoir a little bit better. A lot of people are not familiar with who she is, and those who are may be confused about what she actually said. So first, we get into the questions, specific questions. Tell us about yourself, uh, your background, and how you came to write Before in Time.
0: Well, I have just retired from teaching women's studies and English at a small college in Indiana, DePaul University, uh, and I was here for 30 years. And every spring, I taught feminist theory, and I always included Beauvoir in that class, both because she's historically important, as sometimes people call her the mother of feminism in the 20th century, uh, and also because I think she's a great thinker. So this book kind of grew out of of my teaching and uh, my interest as a as someone uh, trained in in literary studies and also in women's studies. Okay.
1: So, you know, a lot of people, Simone de Beauvoir wrote her book, The Second Sex, in 1949. American audience has got in 1953 in English. Uh,
0: Since then, lots has happened. So how relevant is she? No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. A whole lot has happened. You know, I was born after that, for instance. Uh, And, and, um, when I taught, when I would teach her to undergraduates, which I did for, for a long time, I was struck by two reactions that my students had. One was what you just said, oh, this was such a long time ago. You know, this, this, what could this possibly have to tell us? But then also, look on page 73, that just happened to me last week and i found i have found that and students in that time have changed a lot but i found that there was always something in it that was meaningful to their lives that spoke to their condition in the same way that it spoke to kate millett and and those folks in the 1970s and uh well, not in the same way, but as much. Uh, so that was something I wanted to explore, the, 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 that, that um, she's both of a different time, but not, you know, over. Yeah, in other words, she's almost eternal.
1: Some of her ideas are kind of eternal or perennial. They've been around forever. Uh, so the things that she points out.
0: Well, i would I would like to think that some of the things she talks about might not be with us forever uh violence against women, for instance. we like to think that won't be with us forever, but the fact is that it's been with us for a long time
1: okay, so you point out that many people who claim Bouvoir or talk about her have never really read her she uh, she's one of those people that people like to evoke, but they, they may have a few lines from her book that they kind of picked up somewhere, but they would have never read her. So do, how much do you think this has led to misappropriation, distortion of what Beauvoir has actually said? And in, in a way, makes her, makes it, she makes her work meaningless because everybody has their own take on it, that it's not fully engaged with the text itself.
0: Well, I guess I think that everyone having their own take on a thinker of the past is actually a good thing. That people should look for themselves and see what they think and not have their expectations set by someone else's agenda of what what it's going to say. I think that if people do pick it up, they might be if people pick it up who haven't read it in decades or who have just read the introduction in some course or, or just heard about her as a, you know, as, as a a person who did certain things, uh, they might be surprised by, by a lot of what's actually in the book. And, and that's, I guess what I'm hoping for more than that. There's some one right way to read it, that, that people should, I hope, uh, engage with it and, look at the things that seem weird to them and think, gee, why would anyone think that? And just, just approach it in, a, in more of a spirit of, of curiosity maybe as opposed to, oh, this person, this writer has been packaged in a certain way or even this is the kind of book you have to study in a course because when the book was published, there were no courses. There were no women's studies courses, and it was a paperback with a naked lady on the cover of it. And people just bought it in the drugstore and read it, and it and t- it changed their lives. So, so it, in a way, uh, what I'm hoping for is 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 a restoration of some uh, some sense of reading, not as an assignment or drudgery, or that's something I should know or educate myself about. But just here's someone who had some thoughts uh, about quite a few things.
1: One thing that, that struck me that uh, I really particularly liked about your book and the reason that I picked it up was because I'm a historian right. and I was trained, been trained to read text in context, right. you know, read a text with what was going on around at the time it was written and what they were what the person was responding to and mm-hmm. if you don't do that you can very much do i think a lot of violence to the text because you're not reading it within the frame that the intent and so uh of what they're responding to so when i want to ask you um uh, what what elements of, of the context have been ignored uh, when reading The Second Sex and, and, and the whole body of work, that Simone de Beauvoir, she wrote a lot. I mean, she wrote all kinds of things, uh, political essays, and she wrote novels. And So she didn't just write The Second Sex. Can you uh, tell us what are the elements of the context? Because there was a lot going on in 1949 and 1948. Lots of what was going on.
0: Right. Right. Well, I think one of the things that people have missed about her is how fully she was a woman of the left and how committed she was to anti-racist politics, to uh, politics of social justice. And I think people have missed that because social, questions of social justice looked very different at that time. You know, all the the, um, the Second World War was an inevitable reference point for them. Uh, the uh, a, a little later, uh, anti-colonialism would be an inescapable reference point. I say them. I mean, I mean Beauvoir and Sartre and and all of the existential group that she was part of, um, and anti-racism was a real inescapable reference for Beauvoir after she had traveled to the US. Sexual liberation of a very uh, basic sort. You know, women had only just gotten the vote in France right after the war. Um, a woman couldn't uh, move without her husband's consent, a married woman. It, it, the people didn't have their own money, you know. It was So it was a very... Uh, so some of the some of the things, um, and and also uh, she was writing out of as, as someone who had freed herself from a very restrictive educational uh, her early education, but a, a very middle class Catholic respectability uh, of a of a of a really stifling kind, and so. Sexual self-determination for women was really basic to her. And of course, it's basic to us too. We use different words to talk about it. We use different we're we're having different arguments with different people. I like what you said about who who people were arguing with. I think that's that's inescapable. Um, and so, learning about Beauvoir's context has really helped me learn an awful lot about the 20th century period.
1: Yes. I think, I think her book, uh, the second sex specifically, uh, speaks to a broad range of historical moments. I wanted to ask you about why do you think that most Americans, particularly Americans have misread her because they read her from a liberal paradigm versus an, Not an existential freedom perspective that they don't understand her politics because they're coming at
0: it from a a liberalism a frame. That's really interesting. That's really interesting, Um, because you know from 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 from,
1: uh, you know, War was not that interested at all. In uh, the fact that the French women had gotten the vote, she wasn't interested in in liberal right. politics. She right. was very critical about engaging in liberal political maneuvering, you know, mm-hmm. uh, protesting, petitioning, voting. Uh, so that so some people could say she was apolitical or anti political, but it was really because she was not a liberal as a, a liberal thinker. She was a
0: existential freedom thinker. I think that might be right. I want to think about that more. There are a lot of reasons why people... Well, first of all, Americans um, were not in a good situation to understand her right away because... I don't know if people know this, but the first English translation of of the second sex was terrible. And it was... um, it cut out a lot of her examples. It cut out a lot of the texture of her work. It misunderstood a lot of the existentialist and philosophical terminology. There's a much better one now. Um, so if, if anyone out there is, is wondering which one to buy, don't buy the one by H.M. Parsley, buy the one by uh, Constance Ford and Sheila Malavani-Chevalier, which is, um, you know, it's big. Well, it's a big book. What can I say? But so, so in a way, it was kind of a self-reinforcing thing because uh, the publishers of the American version were um, were were looking to make a buck, and I mean they weren't bad people, but they were they were publishers, and um, they 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 made assumptions that the American audience needed to have it dumbed down. And so that be, then became a self-reinforcing thing. Um, and they also made the assumption that American readers would not be interested in the politics. Uh, and and therefore, um, this... So a lot of it got cut out or got uh, kind of distorted. And then... Uh, Really, the critique came up that that uh, that Beauvoir wasn't really very political, or that she was. I have to think about what you said because people have also criticized her for being too li- too much of a uh, liberal thinker, in the sense of of uh, uh, you know when when people say. Uh, oh, she's just a liberal. She's for like free speech or whatever, and she's a white woman and blah blah, right? White middle class woman. But but I, I think I think there is I think there is something I think there is something to be said for that that there was really not a meeting of the minds. Or the French have this expression that mean that 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 translates as a dialogue of the deaf. And that's and that you know and that's that's a lot of what uh, that's actually a lot of what the book is about is people thinking that they're talking about the same thing when they're not.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> and I yeah, I I, I think that the uh, the the publishers, uh first they didn't think that Americans would be interested in uh existentialism. Uh you know, that was sort of a, the French thing. I think that was one of the things. And the other thing they they pitched it and marketed it as a sex book. Right. Okay. And to- they totally missed that one. Uh so Right well, from the
0: you know, oh. no, because because it is sex book.
1: Well, it is a sex book? But you it know is, what I mean. I thought it's it was a, a sex a, manual,
0: right? But it's a, a you know there are a lot of people in the world of various ages who learned various facts of female biology from this book, right? Oh, wow, it's sort of terrible that they had to, but but you know there are there are worse things and and uh, and. Um, I think part of why it was such a fruitful book for uh, what we call second wave feminism for the late 60s, early 70s is because she was so honest about sex, because she just, uh, you know, her account of it is different from what some people's accounts might be, but she just talked about female sexuality uh, as though women had a right to... Sexual feeling, as though women had a right to sexual satisfaction, and uh, that wasn't something that everyone in the 1950s was saying. Uh, so, so I think you know, I think that the the publishers were um, it was a reductive version, but it wasn't totally wrong. Yeah, well, uh, she
1: was often inter she was often reviewed with Kinsley, you know, yeah, and. Exactly. Uh, female sexuality and male sexuality. And so she was kind of dumped into that, but her, her view of sexuality was very different from his. Uh, So anyway, I want to go on and ask you about how much you talk about this in your book, how Kate Millett, Betty Friedan and Firestone, Shulamith Firestone uh, influenced uh, her legacy in America and what, how people read her. And, and, especially firestone uh she she kind of when much for she she gives her credit and you know dedicates her book uh, uh to her to uh bouvard but she she kind of gets off the track <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit
0: right um, right i i think you know, in hindsight, so each of these are a different case. Friedan, right. Friedan I think, so Friedan, I think, um, picked up the liberal feminist parts of the book. It and did. The rest of it. Right. right? And, uh, you know, Friedan, too, was extremely important and influential, and a lot of people learned a lot from her book, too. But... Um, when people, uh, when readers now look at Friedan and say, but she misses the point because she only talks about women of her same class, but privileged women, married women. Um, well, Beauvoir talks about a lot more than that. Beauvoir talks about working class women's experience. She talks about prostitution. She talks about, you know, she's she's got the whole spectrum there. And Friedan just took one part of it. So it's not just that Friedan was a popularizer, but she 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 kind of missed. She got some of it, but she kind of missed the point. Um, and and I think started, I think I think it like. I've re- read both,
1: and I think what I have uh, concluded was that for Dan, what she did was she was looking at uh, also ideology. You know, the feminine mystique, the ideology, and the second sex is heavily about the myth of woman—not necessarily yeah. the actuality of how women actually live, but the myths that sort of shape their how they experience their life. And I think that ideological. Bent is what Ferdinand picked up, and, and and you know became the feminine mystique that she uh, tried to unpack and show how the feminine mystique operated in society. Not only for if it actually operates for all women, regardless of whether they're in the home, married, divorced, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're always having to encounter and deal with this feminine mystique or this the myth of woman uh, that's been constructed and. So both of them were not really because sociologically for Dan was not really on point because she missed so many women in her time, but she wasn't trying to do that. I don't think.
0: No. Well, I mean, for is interesting because she actually, as you probably know, she had a past as a leftist, which she renounced. Right. So it's, it's not just that she didn't notice that she decided probably rightly that most uh, of the kinds of American women who would read and buy books didn't want to know about that. And, you know, also McCarthyism was just like right before. Um, but there actually is a surprising amount in the So so yes, the, the myth of woman, the eternal feminine, um, the fact that that is garbage, the way that it's been used to, um, keep women down and keep women out. That is really important in the second sex. But there's also a lot of structural analysis. There's a lot of, (laughs) there's a a lot of, I don't know that this will make people more wanting to read it, but there's a lot of statistics in there. There's a lot of, there's, sorry, there's a lot of, you know, facts in there. There's, there's a lot of, um, well, I wanted to know about prostitution, so I went to the library and I found all of these. There is a lot of, so- of what we would think of as sociology in there. So it's not just uh, here's my theory, here's here's uh, what I see in my life, but but it, it's a real it's a real attempt to 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 bring everything together in a completely what we would call an interdisciplinary way. Firestone to me is a different story. Um, Because um, if you look at the dialectic of sex now at Firestone's book, um, she thought she was going, she thought she was more radical than Beauvoir. But if you look at what she says about race in that book, you just can't even, you just can't even, you just can't believe, right? And, um, and that's not in Beauvoir. Firestone took, uh, took Beauvoir's... What Firestone says that, um, is that Beauvoir made a mistake in that she didn't put women's oppression at the center of her book right? So Beauvoir has a general theory of oppression, which she then applies to the case of women. But she also talks about race and class and, and uh, nationality and other things. And she develops this, the, just a general theory of, of um, we, people might not know this is Beauvoir, but when we talk about othering, when we talk about turning somebody into the other, you know, uh, that's in Beauvoir, and that is Beauvoir's, like, general theory of oppression. And Firestone um, thought she was being more radical by saying, no, it's sexual oppression that's at the heart of everything, and even racial oppression is like an offshoot of it. And um, apart from the fact that that some of what she says is really... Um, Nuts, I'm sorry, Um, uh, on the the face of it, Nuts. That was actually a narrowing down, Uh, whereas Beauvoir, I think, has more of what we would now call an intersectional analysis. She says, yes, the problem of women is terrible. It's not the only problem. But, you know, uh, and and that, I think, is a real resource for our times.
1: And also with Firestone, uh, Beauvoir never... Uh, thought that the the problem of women's oppression was because their bodies were a problem. Right. Firestone moves further, and she thinks the the biological body itself, the female body that, you know, lactates and gets pregnant and menstruates, that is a problem that has to be overcome through technology. That's what I read. And I'm like, but, you know, for, for, uh, Simone de Beauvoir never... She, it's the meaning that was assigned to the body, but not actually the body itself was a problem.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, Firestone probably could not have imagined what the new reproductive technology would really be like. She had a utopian, almost a science fiction idea of how that would release uh, women from... uh, Release women from the the uh, biology of childbearing, where she she's very close to Beauvoir in refusing to romanticize childbearing. you know, she so so Beauvoir uh, was was trying one of the myths that she really, really, really wanted to get rid of was this myth that women, women equal mother, uh, mother equals woman. Um, that's the most sacred thing that a woman can do. And therefore we can't let her like vote or be be a legislator or be a philosopher because we need her to be a mommy, right? I mean, Beauvoir was completely against that. And and she was very, uh, <laughs> said that in very vivid ways, which Firestone also picked up. Um, but I think what, I think what, So Beauvoir has this idea of the body as a situation, right? And um, so you have your situation is a big word for her. And um, you have what's given to you, including the body that you have. Um, But that doesn't define you. It doesn't determine you. The the question, and here's where the existentialism comes in: is you know, here's what you're given, and what are you going to do with it? What are you going to make out of that? What choices? Uh, how are you going to freely choose what to do with what you've been given? Um, so she didn't uh, she didn't think that men and women should become exactly the same right? She did not deny, people often have had this misreading. She didn't, uh, deny that women's bodies were different, that there were certain constraints, right? Um, that there were certain, um, she, she talks a lot about how children are brought up and she's very, uh, she gives an account that would later be called social constructionist of, you know, how the choices of, that girls have are narrowed down by what they're allowed to do, by what the messages that they're that they're fed and all of that, as opposed to little boys. But at the same time, she um, she gives the body its due. That's right. That's right. I, I think this I think that's correct. And she also, something that I really like about this is that for her, the body is not just the sexual body. It's not just the maternal body, but it's also not even just the sexual body. She talks about, uh, you know, a part of the book that my students often resonated with was um, when she talks about confining, not being allowed to take up space because you're a girl. Not being allowed to go certain places, not being allowed to make a loud noise, not being allowed to hit anybody—you know—about um, about the way that um, that that uh, being born female, being born male, it it doesn't have to determine you, but certain things about how it's socially understood and and social. Uh, Social construction is real. It's not just an illusion that we can somehow peel off. I can't go, oh, okay, that was all bullshit. Now I'm gonna not feel bad about my body, you know? I mean, believe me, if that would work, you know? (laughs) But it doesn't work. And so this idea, um, so one scholar has, has, has used the word sedimentation to talk about It's not a, a word that that Beauvoir uses but I, I like it um, you know that that these all of these messages and all of these lived experiences that is Beauvoir's word um, become part of your situation and part of you um, and and then you know it's on that basis that you make choices and that you see certain things. is this making sense No yet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but that leads me to another question. She has been attributed as being the source of the sex-gender distinction. Can you can you talk about why this is wrongheaded? Or is it? Is well, she the source of the sex-gender distinction? Or does you know, she t- think about it? She didn't think about it that way.
0: <laughs> well, well, right. Uh, you know, one of the things that I say in the book that I feel most strongly about um, is that if an idea is a good one, more than one person will have it at more than one time. you know, And I think that this comes up in the stake, in the, in, the, um, in the question of whether certain ideas, whether they were Sartre's idea that she picked up or her idea or whatever. And then also with Fanon, right? Because he learned a lot from her and she learned a certain amount from him. And you know, they were all thinking about the same problems uh, and if an idea is, if it's a, a right analysis, you know, it will strike different people at different times. I think, I think there are things, I think there are insights that, uh, and, and what we call social construction is really one of them. You know, some people got that idea from Beauvoir. Other people later got that idea from Foucault. It's a good idea, it's right. it It helps us understand um, how complicated human beings are, you know how we're both in ourselves and with others and 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 the effects. And uh, I think the the uh, but the the terms that certainly um she did not have access to these terms sex versus gender she she does and and French people uh until pretty recently didn't uh pick up on the word gender in that way, but I think she did I think she did have um, would she kind of would, awareness would she say that um
1: even how we view the body, the biological sex is discursively constructed, so that the sex gender sex-gender distinction becomes rather muddled because female itself is linguistically sort of
0: discursively constructed. Well, that's what Judith Butler thinks. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, but... That's what Judith Butler thinks. And I think uh, Judith Butler is right. um, And it's interesting that Butler's earliest... Uh, writing about Beauvoir, she's like, this is great. I agree with Beauvoir. And then when she went to write Gender Trouble, which is her breakout wonderful book, um, she presented what she was saying as an advance on Beauvoir and something of a critique of Beauvoir. And whereas I see them more... and the further away, this is the time aspect, the further away we get from that moment when Butler needed to say, no, I am making a new theory that will revolutionize feminism and 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 Beauvoir, you know, go away, right? Um, the further away we get from that point, the more similar to each other they seem. Um, mm. Yeah, and and, uh, and the same, and and so so I see that as a I think Beauvoir I think Beauvoir leaves open a lot of possibilities that later theories might foreclose. I think there there was a uh, so I talk so you know the book is partly a reception study in a way that I that that I. <laughs> Um, that, and, and I talk, I have a long part that's about the 1980s and in the 1980s, it was like, you were either an essentialist or you were a social constructionist and you had to like throw tomatoes at the people who were not in the same, on the same team as you there. And so, um, so people uh at that time i'm really oversimplifying but i think this is not totally unfair so uh, during that time uh pe- social constructionists threw tomatoes at beauvoir for being essentialist and other people um who had more who had more um investment in the idea of of woman as um of centering woman and womanness, uh, which at that time, I would have said, ooh, essentialist tomato, but but people, people people who who at who felt that way through tomatoes at Beauvoir, for not, for being a social constructionist and for not. Giving enough credit to the body, right? So what this tells us, it's like it's like when you get student evaluations, and some of them say there's too much reading, and some of them say there's not enough. You can go, right? I must have gotten it right, <laughs> you know, because that wasn't that was that was our argument in the eighties. I'm dating myself, but hey, okay, whatever. That was that was an argument that was really important then, but it wasn't her argument, it wasn't. You know, on her horizon, and it's not our argument now either, because uh, the views of the body have really changed. The world has changed, um, so that's another reason to to kind of go back around and and say, well, you know, can you can you think both of these things at the same time? Right, and I think that's I think she was thinking both at the same time.
1: <laughs> that's, that's how I that's how I read her. But anyway, and don't, and don't we, you know. Don't we think both those things? Yeah, are absolutely. Uh, so there's another question here about her idea of uh, you talk about identity politics today and how Bouvard uh, didn't really he, she, in the second sex she wasn't really calling for women to rally around their identity as women, okay? And, and she said, you know, women don't say we uh, that kind of thing. So and she's been accused of you know being. Uh, a detriment to real feminist politics. What do you think about that? Uh, Is her, does her idea, are her ideas, uh, do they foreclose a true feminist politic, group politic and a group identity by which to uh, strive for
0: greater freedom? I think insofar as they... So she says, for instance, in that part of the introduction where she talks about how women don't say we, what she says right after that is she says, bourgeois women show solidarity with bourgeois men. Working-class women show solidarity with working-class men. There are real conflicts here. It's not... And and they're not... Um, there, there are there are generally, genuinely, uh, economically and practically rooted reasons why it doesn't necessarily make sense to women to be part of one movement, right? And so then, in the seventies. People were like, "Oh, Beauvoir didn't see that we have to have a unified moment, movement." And Beauvoir did support the unified movement when it when it, or the the uh, the women's liberation, the the uh, MLF in in France. She did support that. She was with them. She was behind them. Um, she helped them. Um, but you know, at this point in time. Um, So it's like there was women do not say we. And then there was, what do you mean we, white woman? Yeah. You know, if we, if, if somebody says we, it's important not to say we too easily. It's important not to say we uh, assuming, you know, on behalf of other people who don't share our material situation. Right. So I think, you know, it no longer looks like such a bad idea. Well, I was wondering when she said women don't
1: see wheat, was well, she was not actually uh, making a prescription? She wasn't prescribing that. She was basically, I, I think, maybe one of the reasons that she knows that women are set up by the patriarchy in competitive situations with against each other. You know, women compete with you know for men and for the men with the money and uh, for favors, so they can maintain their position. So that. That competition that she describes among women keeps them from saying we. So they have to renounce uh, some sort of privilege that they may have within a patriarchal system
0: in order to join other women. What do you and think? She doesn't, and she doesn't. Um, she doesn't call for that. She doesn't call for much of anything. Right? It's a. It's a. Well, I think this is part of the strength of the book. Actually, the lasting strength of the book. She says, "Here is the situation. It stinks, right? And um, then in the in the conclusion, like if you get through all the hundreds of pages and you get there, she says, need, you know.'" here's what needs to happen about this. There needs to be um, a material and structural things need to be addressed. And also the cultural and psychological things need to be addressed and women need to do it for themselves, for ourselves. Um, But, but she doesn't. um,
1: But doesn't she put this, doesn't she put the individual woman at that center of that instead of the group? In other words, uh, individual women, Mm-hmm. But living authentically out of their own freedom right. uh, to change right. the society comes first. If you happen to meet others, other women who are that's doing right. the same thing, then you've got a movement or you've got a. a right. But she was very centered on the individual
0: experience. No. Right. Yes, that's right. And do you think that's do you think that's wrong?
1: I think it's just one aspect, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's what's more important, the community or the individual, they're both, they're both important. And you can't, if you just say, well, the community and forget the individual, that doesn't work. And if you just say the individual and not the community, that doesn't work either. I mean, you have to, it's a tension there between
0: yeah.
1: your own uh, freedom and acting out of your own authentic freedom and what's around you <laughs> and other people. And she talks about that in the ethics of ambiguity about, you know, your freedom is, is limited by somebody else's freedom.
0: Right. Um, but you know, she does, she does, um, she puts the individual at the center of it, but it's a challenge to the individual. You know, she's calling on women to change. She's not saying yes, woman, be empowered like you are. She's like, no, it's it's, um, yeah, and and, um, you know, I found something that Angela Davis said, um, and which I won't be able to quote exactly. And Davis was not t- talking about Beauvoir, um, but she said. Uh, someone asked her about identity politics and and standpoint. And and she said that um, she was hoping for a politics where people would come together, not out of some static identity that they held, but in the service of a project. And that sounds very... Beauvoir, that sounds very sorry to me, you know? So it's, this is not, so it's not about be, it's about do. It's not a noun, it's a verb. So if if you, um, so rather than seeing, um, seeing some kind of, um, I mean you're you're right Beauvoir does not envision a collective identity she doesn't and that's a, a, a that's a limit that may be a deal breaker for some people right uh, and I, I totally get why. Um, but what she does envision is uh, free individuals coming together to do something right to to um, to get rid of colonialism or to, um, yeah, but it's out of,
1: out of a recognition that you're never going to be truly completely free. If the other is not free.
0: Right. Right. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's, 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 yes, that's, that's really, um, that's really, that's the piece I left out, you know, that, that my freedom is meaningless if other people, if it's based on the oppression of other people. Um, and, uh, she has this almost these almost um, Kantian moments in the ethics of ambiguity, where she says, "You know, if I can't will the freedom of everybody, I can't will mine." Um, and and that, you know, as abstruse as it may sound, has has been uh, a really great and important um, motivating rallying cry for, uh, progressive movements ever since, you know, uh, I had a bumper sticker for, for a a while that said, none of us is free until all of us are free. Maybe you had that bumper sticker too, (laughs) you know, um, it's, that's just true. Uh, that's just true. Um, and it's something that she never backed away from. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's utopian in a way, but, it's not about, um,
1: well, isn't know. that what, no sorry, there's,
0: said, there's no point where she says, here are the five things the movement has to do.
1: Well, <laughs> she, yeah, she wasn't a strategist. <laughs> she was a philosopher and as a good, you know, a good philosopher, their job is, is to be a little, in a bit, of uh, utopian. Okay of what could be, the possibilities. That's what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to give you a practical guide to things. Uh, So I want to talk more specifically about the things, the critiques that have been uh, hurled at Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, Once it's how she talks about women's sexuality, the frigid woman, the lesbian, uh, how she talks about rape, all these different things that have just sent, you know, many, many generations of feminists screaming out of the room. So... Can you talk a little bit about those issues? I know that it's really complicated and you do you do a you do a oh, fabulous job in your book, your book. So um Yeah, how do we, How do you turn people on to get to get through the to get through those passages where she says things about women's sexuality that are just uh really up put, you know, put you off. You go, "Wow." <laughs>
0: She yeah. really doesn't like women. <laughs> the first the first time I I was assigned to read this book in graduate school, I hated it. Um and um we were made to read all of it and I was like, "Why?" And part of the problem was that I was reading it in English, but um but so so it's really hard for me to summarize my book.
1: Right. No, absolutely.
0: It's got, because it's got all kinds of rabbit holes and digressions in it. But, but um, the first, basically the first half of it's about sex and the second, well, the first third of it's about sex. and The two thirds of it is about race and class and, and nationality and all of that. And um, I structure it around a set of things that people have found embarrassing about Beauvoir. And how I address that is historically by going back and thinking, why would anybody say that? What was she reading? What was she reacting to? Right. Um, what else was going on there? And, um what was the language of the time for talking about these things and and i start from the assumption which people have not always done but i start as a reader from the assumption that she knew what she was doing she was very smart she was very looked into things from a lot of different angles um she knew what she was doing, so what did she think she was doing? And why did she think that? And, um, and who else thought that? And, and what else do people think about it? Um, and I don't always end up, you know, this is, this is not a book about making excuses for things that Beauvoir said, but I think we have a richer understanding, both of her work and of the situation of women in the 20th century, Women and other um, groups who uh, are not white and and male and and uh, middle class. I think we come away with a richer understanding of what was happening uh, for people, uh, both during the time when she wrote and also during the times when people responded to her. Um, so, so I guess that's 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 part of that's part of it. I I think. Um, what I ask people to do, and what I hope I somewhat help people to do, is to engage with what's weird and not dismiss it.
1: Yeah, because you talk about her engagement with uh, one of the psychiatrists or psychoanalysts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't find his name right now.
0: Uh, yeah. Oh, Steckel. This completely weird, awful guy. Right, Steckle, who was who was. Um, you know, he was a minor mem- member of, of, of Freud's circle. They threw him out. Um, he, he was, you know, um, and so so you're like, and he wrote this book called Frigidity in Women, which was a bestseller and which did a huge amount of damage to, you know, any, uh, any amount of damage, especially in the US. Um, and so you're like, how could she when he did all these other things? But then, what I what I saw what I saw about Beauvoir as a reader was that she would take what she needed and just throw away the rest. And you she know. used his examples or his case studies. She used his case studies. She right. novelists that she hated. She would use their account of, of a woman's experience. She depathalized um, de- uh,
1: female sexuality because. Uh, in the frigid, the woman about the the book about the frigid woman. It was about there was some sort of deep something wrong with the woman, and she is kind of showing she her argument basically is no, this is sort of like a, a reasonable, rational response mm-hmm. to the situation that she right. has been placed in. Right. If, this
0: is not fundamentally a, a, a dysfunction in her. Right. That's exactly, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly right. It's not that there's something wrong with her. Um, it's that look at what happened to her. And no wonder she's not orgasmic with this jerk that she's married to. You know, I mean, I'm oversimplifying <laughs> right, but no. that much because there are a lot of, sto- lots and lots and lots and lots of stories about, about terrible sexual initiations, as she calls it, about. Uh, awful marriage nights. Um, and, um, but she, you know, where she differed from Freud is that, um, she, um, so she tells several times, uh, a, an anecdote, um, from Denise de Rougemont, it doesn't matter from who, about a woman who was in a psychiatric clinic. And um, because she had this delusion that birds were attacking her. And she was in this, this is just an anecdote, she, it, probably not true, but, but, but she was in this uh, facility uh, for a long time. And then one day, without being able to solve this problem, and then one day the psychoanalyst took her for a walk around the grounds and birds were attacking her. You know, and so this is this is like this is Beauvoir's. Uh, she actually got a lot from Freud, but this is this is is her response to him. You know, is look, don't seek for childhood uh, deep seated dysfunctions. It's the patriarchy, stupid. You know, well, she, I mean, I'm putting this in a very colloquial way, but it's like, no, this really is happening. You are not crazy. This is not okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a rational response. It's a rational response. to response.
1: Let me ask you, uh, go on to a little bit. She was accused of being ethnocentric, you know, very French, bourgeois French. and uh, But her book did have a huge influence around the globe. It. Yeah. All kinds of uh, cultural situations. China, you talk about China quite a bit. Uh, you know, I know she was influential in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this uh, circulating around the globe with its multiple, you know, translations and uh, how much has been lost, misunderstood or appropriated in a different way, how, A lot of, it's amazing how many women found her in in very different cultures, Eastern cultures, found her speaking to them. I thought that that was, so it's kind of hard to accuse her of being ethnocentric when she's speaking in ways that are like universal. And is that kind of a universalist viewpoint that we should reject? Is she just talking about Western women?
0: You know, I think, I What I'm going to say about this is um, there's an insight from reception theory that goes, and I'll explain what I mean by this in a minute. It goes, meaning is realized at the point of reception. In other words, the meaning of the work, that happens when I read it and I see in it what I see, Mm -hmm. and then I make of it what I make of it, Mm -hmm. which is a very existentialist idea, if you think about it, this is what we're given. This is what we make, right? And um, and she would have been so happy with that, really. So uh, she she was interviewed uh, for I think the twentieth anniversary of it, or maybe it was the thirtieth, the twenty fifth or thirtieth anniversary. Um, and the guy who was interviewing her, John Gerassi said. Um, well, so many women in the second wave, well, it wasn't called the second wave yet, sorry. So many women in the American feminist movement say that they're inspired by by your book. Um, And she said, well, they say that, but it was their own experiences. Maybe they found something in my book that was helpful to them but it was their own experiences that inspired them to make the movement. And it was also their, ex- their experiences in the, with the civil rights movement in the US. And, um, you know, if, um, she, she said, uh, and this is interesting, she said, I don't think a book really changes things. And it's funny to have her say she said it several times at different at different points. She says, you know, you 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 write a book and you say what you see, but it's up to people. The it's the this word uptake, you know, if it's meaningful at a certain point, you know, then it becomes meaningful to the people who are actually on the ground making a movement or writing a new theory, because you know, writing is also activism, right? Um, It's not just, just, you know, boots on the ground. Um, You know, that's, that's really fine. Um, Where as a scholar, um, I put that together with, um, no, wait a minute, there really are misreadings. (laughs) You know, they really are, you know, so so that's like the idealistic way of, of putting it. But then there's like, no, that's not what she said. No, that's not what she meant. And, and you know, a fair I will say that a fair amount of my book is is taken up with, um, I hope not too much of it, I've taken up with. How could you think? That's what it says. Look at this page. Look at this. Look at this thing. And 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 look. I'm giving you the um, I'm giving you the French in the footnote too, so that if you think I'm wrong about what the English says, go check. <laughs> so there is a certain amount of, um, you know. I hope it doesn't. I think it doesn't um, make the book too dry. But there is a certain amount of no. Like let's go to the videotape. What did she say? What did she do? um and then why would she say that and then what would people make of it um so so that's the that that's my that's my hope for it that's my hope for it
1: i have a a final question for you um a novice rea- reader who's never read the second sex they get inspired to go out and read it i got to read that i've heard about it i've heard about i've I've had so many people say oh i've heard about that but i've never read it uh what would Advice would you give them to how to approach the book? Besides telling them to read the, the new the new translation, yeah.
0: what else would you tell them? I would say be patient and be patient with yourself. Um, but be patient with her also, because she very often, and this is true of a lot of French writers, she'll spin out a thread for some pages, and then she'll say, but and she'll cut the thread, you know, or she'll say, um, or there are a lot of the, uh, the second half of it, which is based on women's experience. Um, she'll say, well, for some women, it's this. And if you're going, if you're reading it going, not me, not me, not me, then she'll go, but for other women, this, and then you might be in there, right? Um, so I would say, I would say to be patient um to try as much as possible um not to fixate on particular sentences or particular paragraphs to to try and um well now i'm sounding like a teacher but to to try and to try and hold in your sense some sense of the overall chapter and the overall project Um, and and where I'm hoping that my book will be helpful to the general reader and not just to this to the to the scholar is that, um, you know, like any philosopher, Beauvoir makes reference to a very large number of other people that the average reader or even the academic reader has never heard of, um, and and I'm hoping that my book will you know maybe tell people who some of those people were um, not that they necessarily not oh my god i can't understand this book until i've read like four other books but like this is who that guy is don't worry about him <laughs> you know i i don't know um i i would say that the that the um, the parts of the book that um students tend to find most relatable to to use that word um, are the, are the parts of it where she talks about women in the life cycle um, you know don't don't you think that the, the, the oh, totally the childhood totally. and the um, oh yeah you know, and and the mother parts and and all of that um, and it's understandable that people have focused on those parts Um I think if there's something you're interested in, if you're interested in history, if you're interested in in French literature and myth, maybe start with those parts. Maybe don't read it in order. I don't know, but but I think the I think the um, I think the the thing that I would that I would most say is um, don't look for a key. Just kind of. Yeah, she doesn't give you a lot of answers. She doesn't. You, she doesn't do, she's. You're not going to get the answer. It's, it's not, not self-help to do. It's not self-help. She hated <laughs> self-help. Um, it's um, s- see what see what you can um, see what what it's it's like her idea of being with others. So be be with the other of this book and with the other people that are in the book and, and see what you can learn from that. And if, if it's not, if it's not right, then it's, then leave it behind, you know? Um, But, but it's, but I I would really encourage people to, to plunge into it uh, and not look for a soundbite because the soundbites are wrong. Well,
1: it is a demanding book. book. It is a demanding book.
0: It's a demanding book, but you know, if people in the if people in the in the early fifties could read it, we could read it too. We still can read. Um, we we can read, <laughs> you know. And, and and they say that um, they say it's good for us reading.
1: Well, Meryl, uh, thank you so much for your time. You have written a really important book. Uh, I encourage the audience to check it out. It's full of stuff. It's There's something for everybody in that book that you've written. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.